come to our attention that a mysterious force is loose somewhere in outer space. Welcome to Talk Tank. Hello, welcome to the Talk Tank, the official LSE Entrepreneurs Podcast, where we delve into the minds of those who think, live and breathe outside the box. I am David and I will be your host for today. This is Unwrapped, our new series exploring the unconventional changemakers of our world. Here are some of the most unique stories the Talk Tank has to offer as we unwrap these fascinating guests layer by layer. On today's episode, we have Jack Butcher, founder of Visualize Value. Visualize Value began in 2019 and since then has grown into an extremely successful product and consulting business with a combined social media audience of over 800,000 people. Before all this, Jack spent 10 years working in Fortune 500 advertising, building and iterating for some of the biggest names and brands in the world. Jack ultimately is in the business of visual storytelling. And with the help of his wife, Celia, they are now on a mission to teach companies, creatives, and regular people the art of communicating the intangible. Jack, so good to have you on. At this point in the show, I'd already have introduced you, but I'd love for you to go ahead and tell us, in your own words, who is Jack Butcher? Because as our listeners are really going to find out, you do a lot of things. Yeah, a difficult question to answer. Honestly, I get, I've done a couple of podcasts and I should have a better answer for this at this point because I've been asked quite a few times. But um, I guess a designer by trade is probably the most succinct and uh, maybe makes up the, the most of my focus. So I studied graphic design at university went on the agency circuit in New York for 10 years or so, working for big brands, little brands, doing digital design, um, physical installations in museums and retail, all sorts of different applications of design as a skill set. And then three, four years ago, I started my own design agency, which gradually became uh, Visualized Value, which now is, I would even struggle to define it now but it's like five parts media um we do play in the nft space we have some education products uh, a community and a lot of focus on putting out content digitally so a little bit of everything but design is the the kind of thread that holds everything together yeah brilliant and honestly we're going to touch on everything you just mentioned but i just want to start right at the beginning and mm -hmm. like the start of everything and you studied graphic communication uh in cardiff and you graduated back in 2010 which what seems yeah. like quite a quite a while now um and if <laughs> i think you mentioned once that you went over to new york city straight after you graduated and correct me if i'm wrong but you didn't have a job at this point point in time um and the reason I ask this is because being a student myself, and I'm sure a lot of people listening can kind of relate, um, mm -hmm. it, it definitely is a big decision to kind of pack your bags up and go over to the other side of the world and just start, start anew. 
um, what do you just do you remember what what was going through your head at the time and your decision was it just you had to be yeah. in New York City because that's where the agencies were so great question I went to New York about three months or four months before I graduated and the reason I went this is a uh, the London School of Economics listeners will probably get this I met two guys in a Weatherspoons in Swindon one night uh, and they had an extra ticket to New York their friend works for Virgin Atlantic so like we got another ticket if you want to come we're going for three months and uh, I was like mm, I was at the time I was interning in London had a design internship at a tiny little boutique studio it's great great people great work and I never did any of the um, you know a lot of my friends had done like a year out before they went to university or they traveled a lot prior and I didn't I didn't do that so I just um, I kind of hopped at the chance of traveling and on the run up to leaving for New York, I was like, hang on a minute. New York is, you know, obviously has an incredible design scene, like uh, amazing community of designers working in New York. And then I just started reaching out to people that had internships advertised on Craigslist. I'm not sure if you know what Craigslist is, basically yeah. like a classified yellow pages type thing. I got one response and uh, that guy ended up, you know, sponsor me, bringing me over to the States and was a huge influence on my career and my work and uh, a, a massive mentor of mine. And uh, yeah, I never really, I think, never really planned on the move. My dad actually spent a lot of time in America when he was, uh, he was in the Navy and he always kind of talked up America. So maybe that like subconsciously influenced me. And when I had an opportunity to go, I just went for it. But um yeah, since then I've just sort of bounced around, and now I have a family here, so no, uh, no plans on leaving. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty incredible, honestly. Um, right out the gate, were you involved with like these big names, um, or was it more later on in your design career? Yeah, so the 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 agency I first worked at was called Exit, which um, the guy that started it was. Um, I think he did 20 years at an agency called JWT, which is like a huge Madison Avenue uh, advertising agency, like of the 80s, 90s, maybe prior to that, it was a huge name in advertising, still is to some extent, but he, um, he kind of peeled off to do his own thing and had a really tiny studio space with, I think, four or five people working there, including me. And to begin with, I didn't really get exposure to the huge projects they were working on. They had Ralph Lauren as a client to begin with. Um, I kind of had a few, you know, I was making tea and uh, doing a few of the, the side projects and pet projects that he had going on. But over time, I got introduced to that work. And uh, yeah, probably six months in, a year in, I was like working on these national campaigns for big fashion brands, which was a lot of fun. And I suppose now that you're basically your own boss and you have that flexibility to do whatever you want, what was the biggest difference between, you know, working for these clients or was it just, or is it the double-edged sword almost because you might have, you know, all the freedom now, but at the same time, there's that pressure to 
constantly innovate for yourself maybe yeah for sure no, there's definitely uh there's definitely a trade-off right like being in a situation where somebody gives you a set of constraints and a deadline you really feel like you you know or you have a fixed set of variables with which to like work against and mm. it's easier to measure like how well you did especially if you're competing against other people in an agency environment that's fairly typical like if you're working on a campaign idea there'll be like you know two or three or four teams competing for the idea that eventually gets pitched and sold into the client so having those constraints i'm really grateful for those early on in my career because um they really like take a, a lot of the thinking out of it. If you, as everybody knows, like if you sit down to a completely blank canvas, it's much more difficult to um, produce something like incredibly compelling. So over time, I think I've worked a little bit of that into visualized value, but before visualized value was the business, um, I had a, you know, like a, basically a one size fits all creative agency. It was called opponent. And that's a really different situation where, you know, you are out pitching for business and building things that other people want you to build. And I think, you know, both of those environments are interesting and challenging in different ways. But uh, I think it definitely takes a certain type of person to enjoy the, you know, maybe not directionlessness, but the, like the really massive wide open space of, of owning your own thing and kind of shaping it on a daily basis. And some days you just feel like you have to harness the energy and the inspiration when you have it, because it's, uh, you don't get that externality uh, asking you to produce something against the deadline, which is you know super helpful. And when we set deadlines for ourselves, although we have good intentions, if there isn't a, you know, there isn't a paycheck attached to this thing when you're early in your career. It's not, it's just a different, uh, you have a different relationship with the work. So definitely grateful for that. And I always um, reference that when people ask me about like finding your skill or your talent or the things that you're great at some, you know, a lot of, especially entrepreneurial media outlets that kind of shun the, notion of working for someone else but it's an incredible environment to like hone your skills and honestly fail on somebody else's mm. dime and that's a really important uh, advantage too yeah that's a great point actually what what was the culture like was it extremely cutthroat everyone just competing for uh, for work or what was what was it like in the agencies so um in the small agency it was definitely like little family vibe the five or six people when i started to get into the bigger agencies it definitely you know on the surface is very friendly and um uh, <laughs> amicable but yeah there's definitely like competition going on for working on you know a certain account or working on a, a certain campaign because in design or creative work specifically like you're not punching the clock in the same way. And I think this is true. Maybe this is true in, in all trades. There are like, there is um, status associated with working on different parts of the business. And um, you would have to obviously prove yourself to get an opportunity to work on the accounts that everybody wants to work on. And if you're a designer, you're trying to put 
great work in your portfolio. That's how you differentiate yourself. It's not like you're managing a PL or uh, yeah. the one metric you have to compare your ability versus someone else's is the quality of the work you put out. And I think that is possible on, you know, you could take any brief and work on any client and have uh, uh, produce something amazing. But the, uh, the, the bigger names are always the things that you, that people leverage to, you know, get the promotion or move to the other agency yeah. or like, you know, essentially flex the opportunities that they've um, been able to work their way up to. So I, I had some of the best, definitely some of the best uh, working time of my life in agency environments. And I love that. I love the competitive nature of it, but it's uh, you know, it's definitely a acquired taste. Not everybody loves that environment. I suppose in a way it prepares you for being an entrepreneur, right? It gets you to be mm -hmm. thick skinned and maybe not give up on the first hurdle. But um, I'm just wondering basically, cause in 2017, that's when you started your, your own ad agency, right? And between that time, yeah. when you started working in New York city, it was obviously you were, you were hopping around a couple of places. I mean, is that what it's usually like for someone who's in the advertising industry? Uh, do you just go from place to place? Um, is the turnover rate kind of high? Because mm. I noticed you spent like two years here, two years there. Um, you were at Bloomberg at one point even. Yeah. Yeah, I got like, I think I got like nine months, I think was probably like the average of the oh. time I spent doing something. And I, I, I just get an itch. So even if I stayed somewhere for like two years, by the nine month mark, I was like, okay, I've kind of figured this out. Like, um, I, it was looking for something different, but sort of going to the same place. So in retrospect, it's like, you're, you think changing environments or changing like the, you know, the name over the door is going to satisfy yeah. that itch that you had but for me it, it didn't really i think i definitely got a ton of exposure to a lot of different problems and teams and industries and clients but it's uh like it's more of the same and all the business models are the same so to expect much different is uh is mm. you know kind of naive i guess there are definitely standout places that um you know, you see people put in like 20, 30, 40 years at a place because they just love it. I, the first place they ever worked where, what I mentioned, I think that's the only place that maybe would have been that for me, but that, but the principal moved on and did something else. I've got a few friends I graduated with that have worked at design agencies in London for coming up on, they started when I started in New York and they're still in the same place. Um, so I think it, it, is definitely something driven by my desire to just like get in a new environment, have a new, like have some new challenges. And, and I, after like seven or eight tries, I was like, okay, maybe this isn't the, actually the, the, the deep rooted uh, thing that is making me bounce around is not like just being at a different agency and working on a different client. It's more like having control or, you know, having more, um, more space to operate or just to like, I got frustrated with how little the, um, how little of the work we did got made or like how hard it was to sell things in or the compromise that you have to get to, to just uh, reach an agreement. It's uh, like after many years of like looking back on it, it's a lot of like middle managers negotiating with other middle managers 
where you don't really have insight into the thing that you're trying to do. Like they don't have visibility into the metrics and we don't have visibility into, sorry, visibility into the metrics. So you're kind of just, someone just wants to make their boss happy. They don't want to do anything too outrageous and we're the same on our side and you're kind of reporting in upward to account managers that present your work. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of like fighting for things that don't end up making the cut. And I think over time, I just got really worn down by that. And then the idea of starting my own agency was to get past that. And I actually ran into that problem a couple more times and I can talk about that at length, yeah. but there's just a few things that are, uh, are true no matter what size the agency is. It has a lot to do with like, who you're working with and and what they're like what they're capable of saying yes to that's really uh your that sets the ceiling on how creative you can be yeah and so in 2017 you decide to start your own ad agency uh, opponent and there's a kind of a two-year period in which you're i would say figuring stuff out and you eventually arrive at the conclusion that maybe uh, this isn't what you want to be doing, your own ad agency. And uh, 2019 is when you um, basically um, start Visualize Value and go into it, you know, full time. And that's now obviously the you know, the main part of your of your business and your brand. So I was just wondering, you know, what those two years in between were were like for you. Sure. Yeah. So so opponent actually came about as a like a favor from a guy who I used to work with at one of these massive agencies was pitching some business to a big client. And uh, he texts me, he's like, I know they're going to say no to this because the numbers are just so ridiculous. So here's an, I have an idea. If you're interested, when, when they say no to our quote, I can refer them to you. And at the time I was working, I had a job at the time. And he's like, you know, you're going to need a website and a LLC to, essentially take the call. So I was like, thank you very much. I set that up. I was still doing my, uh, still working as a designer for another agency yeah. at the time. And this is a big automotive brand. And, um, I just started working for them on the side. Like the first couple of jobs were really small. So it was like really nice supplemental income. And I was working, you know, mornings and evenings whilst doing my day job, like running out of conference calls in a full-time job to, you know, take conference calls as the principal of the agency that I was doing freelance work for. Um, so that was just hectic for probably a period of like six months or something where I was doing both at the same time. And then there was a huge job that I pitched and they said yes to, and that was like essentially enough of a financial cushion where, you know, do that job and there'll be a couple months of runtime after that to figure stuff out. Right. Yeah. So that was when I took the leap and quit the full-time job. And then that, that account got bigger and bigger and they kept like kept sending work my way, but it was just hectic. But you, it's basically everything right. I just go on. I was going to say, so you already decided at that point that you wanted to quit. Like what was the, yes. what was the intuition like behind that? Was there something? I think, you know, one of the things that, that I refer back to is like, I got to a point in my agency career where I started to see the economics of that agency. Mm -hmm. So it's like, 
when you're when you're obviously starting out nobody's showing you the balance sheet of the agency they're not showing you even the like they don't even want to show you the breakdown of costs on the job because i think one i think maybe they're trying to protect you from that as a creative person they just want you to focus on you know doing the the work and the output but i think that stuff's incredibly important obviously any agency is being engaged to drive a business result of some description and that mentality i just don't think works long term um but anyway i got to a point in agency where i was exposed to those numbers and i was like hang on a minute i'm getting paid this and you're charging a client that there's an, a massive difference there and i know that i'm doing 85 percent of the work and there's some naivety in that like that obviously wasn't that obviously wasn't completely true there's like all these layers of administration and you know there's hr people there's accountants there's project managers there's all of this stuff right but the way i saw it as the like 20 something designer was like full of energy i was like i'm doing the work and i'm only getting x right mm. and so much of it came down to like the relationships they had and the, the rates that they'd negotiated things of that nature it's like it's not as simple as like you know just produce the work and charge what they charge for it so that was that was the thing that was bubbling in the back of my mind and then as soon as i got this opportunity i was like okay i'm gonna do it and the other thing that is probably worth mentioning is as a designer with like a reasonable network in New York, you've, it's very, um, it's very plausible that you could freelance and bounce around and like find work. It's not like you're, you know, starting a software startup where it's like all or nothing, like this either works or it doesn't that that the design skill set is very robust in that way where you can you know jump into a team produce something or like there's and you know, obviously new york is just an enormous place and if you have a couple dozen people that you've worked with over the course of eight years there's opportunities that pop up so that was another thing in the back of my arm i was like even if this goes to zero then you know i can freelance i can find work no problem um yeah so that was the mentality and then dove into it full time and obviously started to just feel the same things I was feeling in the big agency environments. Right. Okay. And so you're, you know, you're building opponent and you're working on it. Um, but at the same time, you're building visualized value, quietly iterating in the background, constantly pushing out your, your graphics. And what I find interesting is that visualized value was, you know, obviously intended as a lead generation tool for your agency business and uh, it's meant to you know convert people into customers and clients um, and it acts as your your resume right and you know I want to know what that realization was for you or what prompted you to suddenly start focusing on visualized value and you know as like this is going to be the the business that actually ends up working for me yeah so funnily enough the the realization I had was in producing all of this work for these big businesses, the most valuable thing that I ever produced is the pitch deck that sold them the work that never, you know, no customer ever saw that. That's not like, that's not a like market facing deliverable, but it's the thing that was getting me work. And I think the realization I had was like, okay, let's get away from like, being in anyone, you know, anything for anyone creative shop where you're not really like building equity in a, you know, as a creative, like an aesthetic or a, um, 
a style or a, you know, a problem that you can solve. And that small realization was like, okay, maybe I can just take on some work where I'm just helping people with like visually articulating things in a very particular way. And that's like, that's where opponents started to pivot in that direction. Where I was like, I'm not going to take on like video projects and like website design and all this stuff that I'm kind of mediocre at. Um, and I had very little desire to like spin up a team full of full-time employees and hire office space and stuff. I just didn't want to do that. Um, so that's where I was like, okay, so that you you get to a fork in the road where you're like, you can scale it with people or you can scale it with specificity. And then I was like, okay, specificity is the way I want to go. I want the, um, the flexibility to be able to do this anywhere. Um, and I kind of wanted to base it off of something that I was personally like had seen results from, and I could get behind and like sell confidently. And that's where that deliverable came from and then visualize value as a, you know, the social content that I started doing was a way to broadcast that skill set and attract people that needed something uh, articulated visually. And it worked um, after a period of time. I did use a lot of, um, there's like a few people in my personal network that were founders or entrepreneurs that like hit me up when I just shown them some of the stuff I was putting together for these bigger brands. And they're like, Oh, can you do that for me? Hmm. And, uh, there's a, there's like a calculation that goes on there where you're like, I know that this person obviously is not going to pay fortune 500 rates yeah. for this thing, but I know it's not going to be like 10 phone calls a day and the hmm. three month engagement and this many people I have to interface with. So it was a, it was definitely a like complete switch in focus. And then there was definitely some overlap where I carried on doing the, um, the corporate stuff. And it's very alluring on the face of it. Like they always come back with like, Hey, we've got this big project and, uh, this is our budget. And I'm there like making keynotes for, you know, somebody that pay that's paying a 10th of that or a hundredth of that in some cases. And, uh, it was a hard thing to stick to, but over time, you know, we, we got traction there. So your, like your forte was pitch decks, right? And that, that formed the basis of visualized value. Yeah. I think uh, just looking back at all my agency experience as well, that was kind of, you know, 50% of what I was doing was this, like, just like trying to, um, trying to articulate the idea behind a campaign or a product or some idea that we're selling in. And it wasn't a thing that most people wanted to volunteer for in an agency setting. Like they just want to work on the sexy stuff at the end of the process where they want the ad in their, in their portfolio. They want to right. like go to the award show. They want to do all that stuff. And I, for whatever reason was way more attracted to that, um, that like hidden deliverable that never really saw the light of the day, light of day, didn't go to market. You just, you know, you go and pitch it in a conference room mm -hmm. somewhere. And then someone will sign a letter of intent based on what you put together in that deck, not what you actually produced. And that's like a really interesting thing over time where you start to realize, okay, that's where the value actually is. Yeah. Like if, if you can then deliver on that thing that you uh, sold, which in the agency environment, nine times out of 10, they can't. Um, there was this saying that used to go around the, uh, one of the bigger agencies that I worked at it was, it was, um, sell the dream, deliver the nightmare. <laughs> right. 
And that's uh, indicative of like, you know, how much energy and effort goes into producing a really good story. And then as soon as like the incentives are misaligned, right? So as soon as they mm -hmm. win the business, they basically put the cheapest labor on it. Yeah. And they just like, they build time and materials. It's just a really bizarre business model. And I, I like, I'm not, there are definitely amazing agencies out there and amazing creatives and all or every job title in an agency. There are people who are really talented at it, but it always just irked me. The business model just like, is like, we're not aligned here. Like you, we're trying to spend as much time as possible solving this problem. Cause that's how we get paid versus like, we're actually trying to fix this thing. Hmm. I think it's super interesting that you mentioned it was the hidden deliverables in the end that ended up being the client facing or the front facing part of right. visualized value. Right. Um, and I think people listening might still be wondering like what on earth like visualized value still is. Cause right. I think you really have to see it to kind of understand it. So I think for people listening, honestly, you need to go on like Twitter or Instagram right now and just type in visualized value and you will understand exactly what Jack has been talking about for the past uh, 30 minutes. Um, it's basically these almost, how would I describe it? I would say just this most bare boned um, streamlined versions of complex ideas. Is that the best way to put it? How would you yeah, describe that's, it? That's, I take that as a compliment. Yeah, it's just trying to distill complicated yeah. concepts into simple visuals. That's the idea. What 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 made you like choose that as the thing that you wanted to produce? Was there something that you saw and then a, like a light bulb mm. went off? I think it is definitely like a combination of experiences where you where you again going back to like having the experience of pitching ideas in person and when you put something on a slide and you watch a room of people that have no idea what you're trying to say like a light bulb goes off in their head like they get it as soon as they see something that's like a you know a moment where there's an well that basically produced an insight for me where it's like i didn't i don't necessarily get that feeling or intuit that from the stuff that I'm producing later on in the process, maybe because I'm not connected to it. Like you produce something it goes out into the world or it's, it's just f far away from you versus like even somebody explaining something to you and then you drawing it and like presenting it back to them. They're like, wow, like that really encapsulates what I was trying to say. Or like, I now feel confident that I have this asset that I can, used to support this idea I have, or this thing that I believe, or this, like this thing that I want to build. And that like, again, just coming to the concept of value or the word value that to me was like, after struggling to see like why we're doing certain things in these agency environments, that to me was like the truest thing that I always could go back to. Like if I ever wanted to feel like I'm doing something that is worthwhile, useful, valuable, that was the thing. Um, so yeah, I just kept coming back to that. And as I really loved working on the um, pitch decks for all this business that we were trying to win as an opponent. And I was like, man, you don't get paid for that. As an agency, you don't like, you only get paid if you win the pitch. And like some of these documents now, I'm still incredibly proud of them. They're 10 years old. 
And um, they, because you have complete creative freedom in producing that, there's uh, there's just a quality to it that doesn't carry into the um, the work at the end of the process in most cases in an agency or in an agency with certain incentives and relationships. So I think there's just something in that like light bulb moment of seeing somebody understand a visual that was like, I just wanted to recreate that. I just go deep right. on reproducing that feeling at scale. Eventually that's, I think where we've gotten to. But where did you get these concepts from? Was it just like, general concepts or did you have mm. people you you took inspiration from because i know so um, naval right he was a big influence in in your work massive yeah massive and i think you know what is interesting is um i'm very grateful for discovering those ideas later on if that makes sense so like doing the the kind of um operating without knowledge of any of those principles for seven, eight years is just like you're honing a very like specific skill set as a designer and, you know, technology or technologists or people that cut their teeth in Silicon Valley or were attracted to that have always got those ideas in the back of their mind, right? It's like scale, 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 technology, leverage, all of those concepts. Yeah. And if you don't have the thing to apply leverage and technology and all of that stuff too then it just it's this frustrating like loop of um you know chasing a chasing an idea rather than applying uh, that concept to something that works so i think just finding finding naval's ideas came at a time for me where it just kind of all clicked i could have read them like you know two or three years earlier and i don't think it would have uh, resonated in the same way because I was struggling with the agency model at that point in time. And these were like epiphanies for me in the same, at the same scale. So I was just, um, the thread that everybody who listens to this is probably familiar with, uh, how to get rich without getting lucky, where he outlines maybe 20, 30 principles of the internet leverage, um, labor, all of these ideas that are, you know, just glaringly obvious in hindsight, but the way he yeah. articulates them, I think, uh, is obviously has resonated with a lot of people and, and changed the way a lot of people operate. That played really well into the first iteration of visualized value. I was like, okay, I'm going to use these ideas and add visual context to them. So the first, like, probably the first 50, 100, 200, I don't know how many were, you know, Naval. Nassim Taleb, uh, Seth Godin, just people who have, like had ideas that helped me pivot the business in a certain direction. So it's almost like these things that were helping me figure it out. I was just putting through this process, like, and then re-articulating them out. So it was like this uh, flywheel almost. Like I needed to understand these ideas in order to move the business in the direction I wanted to take it. And they actually, you know, became kind of the fuel to do it. It's a very meta uh, feedback loop that started happening. So, you know, you're posting these, these designs, you know, people are starting to like them and you're getting some, you know, some traction on Twitter. Um, and you're taking, you know, all these ideas from you know, people like Naval and, you know, people like Nassim Taleb are, are retweeting your tweets. And, you know, obviously these are, two very successful people in their own right. And 
um, have, you know, extremely intelligent, informative um, Twitter profiles and definitely recommend uh, anyone listening to, to check these guys out. Um, but what was the moment, Jack, that basically made visualized value just start to, to take off? Was there a defining moment? Yeah, I think there's definitely a few moments for sure, but um, I think more broadly, it was uh, Twitter as a platform. So I was, I was running opponent from like, you know, I was trying to do like Facebook ads and stuff for opponent. It was just like, in hindsight, I'm just looking, I'm just like, what was I thinking? Like there's, it's just bizarre how you can get pulled into these, um, you know, you can kind of blind yourself of like what's actually true and just like trying to follow a playbook that somebody's, somebody else is using for something totally different. But anyway, ad- advertising opponent to like 500 people that I went to school with and uh, like, it's just, just make no sense. Right. And then Twitter, I had an account on Twitter since 20, 2010, never really used it personally. And then just this, I guess this, uh, it was so profound to me to think like, even on Instagram, you can maybe get in touch with people, but either someone running their account or it's like, you know, there's so much volume, they don't really see it. And Twitter is so it's just crazy that like the people that we're talking about right now wake up and open Twitter and check their notifications. Like the chance that yeah, somebody's going to see something you wrote about them on Twitter is, 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 it's bizarre. Like you're seeing it right now at an even more profound level, right? Elon Musk is replying to like random people in the comments of his tweets. It's just bizarre. Like that's not something 10 years ago, you just wouldn't think you could, um, you could do from your phone and you can now. And that was really, like pairing the visualization of these ideas with like tagging the people who's who produced them in the first place. And they would either amplify them, you know, retweet them or interact with them in some way, which then expose them to their network, which is like this, there's just this really interesting compounding effect. Obviously the people that are already following that person value what they have to say. So you, you like siphon off some of that, um, well, not even siphon off, it's just a compounding component, right? So they're going to follow this because you're visualizing the ideas of this person they respect. And then that introduces you to another network of people. Maybe you discover some new ideas. And uh, yeah, Twitter as a platform. One morning, I remember um, the Seam Taleb retweeted uh, one of the really early graphics. And I was just looking at the notifications tab. I was like, what is this? It was just, it was bonkers. Like how fast it was kind of flying around the internet. And then again, that's like Naval's ideas playing out before my eyes, essentially. It's like, you've done this one graphic, which, you know, maybe took a couple hours to think of and 15 minutes to produce. And now it's, you know, a million people have seen it and 1% of them are going to subscribe to what you put out for the next few years. It's just a bizarre realization. And then that, you know, I really lent into the, um, I really lent into that idea of like borrowing ideas and adding context and tagging people. And that, that really grew the account. Yeah. I was going to talk about Twitter, um, a bit later on in the podcast, but now that you've mentioned it, I suppose there's definitely a lot to, to unpack here. I mean, even the differences between the, the types of people you find on Twitter versus you mentioned definitely Facebook, but even mm-hmm. Insta- Instagram as well. Right. Um, 
and you're you're um, active on on both platforms definitely twitter much much more but your instagram following is um also very large um but how how do you see um the communities and on either on either side i assume there's some overlap between the followers but yeah um it's just a different kind of community on twitter as as compared to, to instagram yes yeah, so twitter like i said before like wasn't a native platform for me until i discovered this ability to reach people um that were uh producing the ideas that were like i was starting to discover and that were starting to influence the business and i think there's definitely an appetite for that on instagram in the same way but it feels like more of a maybe it's like more passive consumption on instagram like there's definitely i've definitely built up community through instagram but twitter is like maybe it's like there's more curiosity or there's more, like the depth of exchange is more significant um and like the open network nature of of twitter is it's pretty interesting it's like these are ideas that are connecting people primarily versus you know aesthetic or images or like it's instagram is much more of a lifestyle um like it lends itself way more to the lifestyle stuff so for example like we would if you just look at it from a like product perspective the education products almost 100% of that business comes from twitter versus merchandise prints things that are like more um i guess casually consumed are coming from instagram and i think that skews younger skews less like tech heavy um and you're also again the communities of people that are connected to the ideas that initially built up the account that heavily influenced the the kind of demographic or psychographic mix of people like technologists entrepreneurs um you know a lot of people with reasonably high disposable income or like it's just an interesting uh divide and i think as in general that's true of twitter but it's even more stark with a concept that is you know uh as specific as a visualized value which is you know talking quite pointedly at people who are trying to build something or work on themselves or um yeah learn just curious people i think that's been uh, an amazing tool and i don't think this business would be even remotely close to where it is now without a tool like twitter yeah i think twitter has nailed its the way people interact it's like i i think i i think it was actually your podcast uh not investment advice where i um was it um the vice president of ftx who mentioned that if yeah, you're yeah 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 you're brett. On, if yeah brett yeah if you're on crypto if you're into crypto or web3 you need to be on twitter and it makes mm -hmm. so much sense right because everyone that's uh, in the space just interacts on twitter um i think that the communities there already have a higher disposable uh, income the propensity to to purchase something uh is just right. is is so is so large but um i think we should also address how you grew your your audience because you built 
all this in a span of three years, which is kind of insane. Um, and the funny thing is, I don't think you even intended visualized value at the start to be something to grow, right? You just, you made it as something right. to, to show off your, to your work. So how, how did it come about? Do you think? Yeah, I think, um, definitely. So I think Twitter is so intrinsically like tangled up in all of this stuff where, um, it's, there's like a feedback loop going back and forth. So you get really good feedback from Twitter in that it's validating in terms of like, this is this idea that I think is valuable. Let's see if that's true at a wider scale. And then you get that validation. It's like, okay, I'm going to go deeper on this idea or the combination of these two ideas. And that takes you down a different route. And then uh, maybe you don't get as much good feedback in a different direction. So you pivot back. I think early on, I was doing maybe four, five, six graphics a day. I was just like, there's definitely some like dopamine issues going on there early on, particularly where it's just like you get this amount of feedback. It's like, you just really want to keep the, the flywheel going. And I've kind of backed off that a little bit, but the... Yeah, the, the the feedback mechanism from Twitter definitely helped grow. I think the decision to keep it very consistent visually has a has an effect on it because that consistency, I think, is just like you know you you don't even really need to consume the graphic to know where it's coming from at this point. Like the aesthetic has has some weight to it. At least that's what I've heard people say back to me is like, I see the thing. And before I've even, you know, before it's even in front of me, really, like I know it's a visualized value graphic. And I think that has really helped in, in uh, not only just being able to produce consistently. I've talked about this at a good amount of length is like setting constraint. And we talked about at the beginning of the podcast where if you have, um, a set of constraints imposed upon you, then you can get way more creative within those constraints versus like use opponent as an example, as a business. It's like, now I just look back at that. I'm like, how would I ever have gotten that to the size of visualized value? It's just, it's unfathomable because the amount of variation and like context switching and, um, it's just so broad the way like it would appeal to like everyone and no one right versus this very specific aesthetic that I think has helped um, just build equity slowly and then obviously the network effects of the internet do crazy things and one retweet could add a thousand people in an hour and like if you really look back I bet there are only a couple dozen like mega catalysts yeah. a lot of it is consistency but there are like things that you didn't plan on that just go absolutely haywire. And that's again, another function of the internet and like complicated systems is you can't, you can't really predict it. And the, you know, they're just one-off moments. Yeah. yeah. Like what, once it takes I mean, off, it, power it, it laws takes off. Play. Yeah. 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 But does it get, um, does it feel scary uh, at one point because you realize that your Twitter account, your f and your community is in the hands of you know one company um and that actually happened to you right you um, yeah yeah 
got banned. You lost, you lost, yeah, you lost it to the account for a bit. But um, is that something you think about still? I do, yeah. I like, I, you know, I go, I definitely hover back and forth. Like the sometimes, um, I sort of step back from it. it as like, ideally, you would have a business that is not uh, contingent upon like someone else's. Uh, uh, like someone else is allowing you to operate under a set of rules that, you know, could change tomorrow. That's obviously yeah. a, a legitimate risk. Um, there are things that we do to try and hedge against that, like emails, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. I think the one thing that I, the one thing that is interesting about all this stuff is like, there is some equity built up that even if your account got banned, I think you could get back, you know, like the, um, like starting up again, unless it's, uh, unless you're banned in, uh, uh, like, you know, you as a person are prohibited from creating content on this platform forever, uh, which is very few and far between. Yeah. I think there would be ways to claw it back. Obviously you, you would lose a lot of momentum, but people still like, you exist as a, uh, you know, as a part of people's collective memory. So I think you can get some of that back, even if you did lose access to a platform, it would be painful, but you can do it. Um, and then, yeah, we'll see what Elon does with, with Twitter on the, on the other side of that debate. I think, um, there's obviously really nascent stuff happening in web three that could counter some of this stuff over the longer term um but the network effects of established platforms are like make no mistake that is where like consensus is derived right we haven't got even remotely close to an alternative to like a centralized communication network and it's hard to imagine what needs to happen to get there because there there is obviously huge value in the network that uh, uh, amasses the most collective attention. Like that's where ideas get decided upon and consensus is reached. And um, yeah, I, I don't want to uh, lose access to a network like that because that would have a profound effect on yeah. the business for sure. You know, and on that topic of, you know, Web2 brands and Web3 brands and whether, you know, as a creator, do you actually own your tweets do you own your followers given that you know and one day uh it can just go all away because it's in the hands of 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 uh, a, a small party but that's a whole uh, other debate in itself but it raises an interesting point um which is related to this fact it, and that is the idea of community uh versus customers and there's a distinction here and i think that uh, Web2 brands, existing Web2 brands have their own approach to this uh, and uh, Web3 brands have their own approach uh, to this. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, you know, with visualized value kind of being in that in-between space, uh, both a Web2 brand and a Web3 uh, brand as well, a Web2.5 um, maybe, how and what do you think of of this distinction yeah so i think this stuff is 
again, playing out at such a fast clip that Web3 communities, all of these like words that have like attached themselves to a moment in time or like a set of trends are really fascinating to me. And when under pressure, do they still hold that same, uh, like that same definition? I think community in the context of web three is, uh, is, I think it's about the difference is ownership, right? You build up something on any web two platform, people that participate in it can derive value from it. They can buy what you, uh, buy what you put out versus web three is like, you're giving your, like what you would previously call your customers, a option to like, an option to like attach themselves economically to the thing you're building. I think that's the difference. I think just the potential of exposure to the upside is not something that is, that was particularly accessible in web two. I mean, it is like you could go and buy a thousand bucks worth of Twitter stock and then tweet all day, but because it's not a new, because it's like a, not a novel behavior, I don't think, and, and because it's not a new market, people aren't excited about it in the same way as like web three communities that, you know, you, you hear, or you see stories of people, uh, seeing a huge amount of return or being a part of something really early. I think the kind of the, there's a lot of cultural parallels to this. Like when you discover a band or something, right. You listen to their music before they get popular and then you get the cultural clout for saying, I knew about them before, you know, everybody else. Yeah. Now there's like a cultural, there's like financial upside attached to that cultural, um, knowledge or like some, in some cases, this isn't even about culture. It's about like uh, a protocol or a tool or something that you see becoming valuable in the near or medium or long-term. And I think the risk to all of that stuff is just how fast people switch, right? Because the space is so noisy. It's like, it really tests people's conviction and, um, I've thought really long and hard about how to build something for like something web three native for visualized value. And like, I'm kind of a, in the 2.5 space right now, you know, there's so much, um, there's so much going on around like, you know, what is and isn't even, uh, legal in this space, which is like, like I'm operating under my, you know, full name with a registered LLC in the States with like visualized value as a established web two brand. I think people well, I've talked about this on the, a couple podcasts, like exposing yourself to like thousands and thousands of shareholders overnight is an interesting decision, right? There's, there's so much, uh, that's a very different business model than, yeah. um, you know, you own a hundred percent of something and you make things that people want to consume. So I would push back on anybody that says like web three is a super or maybe not web three, like issuing ownership to everybody that interacts with your company is a good idea because the amount of like, by bringing down that barrier of entry, you're also like allowing a lot of, um, 
maybe criticism isn't the right word, but like the amount of feedback you start getting instantly is, uh, I think counter to the, it can be a speed bump on the road to like building something like legitimately valuable. Um, mm. so we're seeing like a lot of speculation in, in, uh, in products that I've, I wouldn't even call them products, maybe like brands that are really not that complicated, right? You just, right. there's like some cultural zeitgeist that they've gotten tapped into. And now is like the really different, we're now like kind of in chapter two, maybe where people are going to be tested on what they build and how they, uh, deliver value long-term. Um, yeah, that's, that's a convoluted answer, but I think it's like, we're, we're at such a like early stage that anybody who talks with like legitimate conviction about this space, I, I, yeah, I hesitate to, oh, to trust okay. in, uh, in anybody that has that solid of an idea what's happening tomorrow, let alone, you know, a year or two. Hmm. I want to go back to visualize value. Um, your main like source of revenue is in your courses, right? Um, Correct. You have three of them. Um, could you just maybe go into a little detail about what does each one teach and who exactly they're for? Sure. So uh, I'll actually talk about them in the order in which they came out. So the first yeah. one was a design specific course. It's called How to Visualize Value. And the catalyst for that course was a tweet by David Perel. You know David Perel? Yeah. He's a he's a writer and um, six months in or 12 months into Visualize Value being out in the world, he tweeted, um, this is a skill I really want to learn, you know, give, to give visual context to my ideas. And um, I then, again, the power of Twitter, quote tweet that tweet, who else would be interested in something like this? Like people pile on, yep, yep, yep and uh put up a pre-order page then sat down and basically made a you know from scratch beginner's guide to thinking about how to add visual context to an idea so a lot of people ask the question like is this for designers and my answer is always like absolutely not right this is uh this is a tool for people who kind of see the value in being able to use visuals to communicate and you know regardless of what you do, especially if you're in a scenario where you're working remotely, um, you know, if you're communicating through the internet, like your ability to communicate is really the, the ceiling on the people you meet, the things you get to build, all of those things. Um, so it's, it's um, a guide for people to learn that skill at a basic level. And then obviously a lot of practice comes after that. The second one is called build once, sell twice, which is, Oh, which was only possible, honestly, after building how to visualize value. So it's the idea where it unpacks the idea of taking a skill or a point of view that's taken you a long time to refine and put productizing that in a way that separates your, you know, time from your income. So the very, uh, the simplest example is me as a design consultant versus me as a design teacher at scale, right? So as a consultant, I'm charging for an eight hour day, I'm clocking off, I'm going home and I'm working on a bunch of stuff and then uh, getting back on the phone tomorrow versus here's this very specific way that I think about visualizing value and I'm going to produce this product that teaches you how to do it. So that basically walks through that entire 
process and the idea of like taking a service business and making it more efficient, you know, it's not about everybody chasing the exact same outcome. It's just some of those ideas that people haven't been introduced to that are working in these inefficient businesses can make tweaks to, you know, how they think and operate. Um, Hmm. And the final one is called the permissionless apprentice, which is ironically, maybe the, you know, the most, uh, this is kind of the, the onboarding for both of the other courses, or if I had to make a recommendation of where to start, I think permissionless apprentice is, uh, is the one. And I think that the confidence in producing that curriculum came from watching people go through the other curriculums and apply the stuff that they'd learned or hiring people or working with people that had, um, reached out to me and just looking at the difference in their approach. And really it just breaks down this idea of, acting without permission, you know, producing things that prove your skill set, using the internet as a like distribution mechanism for that, meeting people, uh, just like creating opportunity, you know, engineering opportunity on the internet. I think uh, a lot of us either go to schools or grow up in families or have ideas uh, like we absorb ideas from environments that maybe don't align entirely with the way the world now works. And what the permissionless apprentice is aims to do is to kind of refocus you on like how things work now and what you can do to tap into like the enormous opportunity that the internet creates for anybody that has a, you know, perspective, a skill, like something they want to learn or teach or build. Yeah, and obviously these courses um, are very successful and um, they've done very well. But I just wonder, how do you go about scaling visualized value? Because, I mean, the way I see it is like someone buys um, your courses and then that's it, right? It's a one-time purchase as opposed sure. to like a subscription. So how how exactly do you onboard more people or... Um, think about just expanding the business? Yeah, that's a good question. So the, like, I've been kind of intentionally, um, intentionally measured in how often to like produce new education products. And I do think like a lot of people go for like, I've done, I've tried the subscription model. I think there's definitely merit to it but over time there's there's kind of an atrophy of information too like so much of what visualized value is about is like the stuff in those curriculums is enough like you don't need to be plugged into this thing three days a week for the till the end of time that's kind of the the problem i had with the agency business too right it's just like selling people a service that they don't need and i think um on the like the next leg up of scale i think comes from a different type of um a different type of work whether it's partnerships whether it's like on the media side like blowing it up at a different level so um i think i think uh the courses will always be a component of the business there's also um some 
actually I'm working with a couple of universities now to get the courses put into curriculums at scale. So that's another, you know, wow. another way to think about scaling it where you're not, you're not selling to uh, an individual seat at a time. Right. I think those like enterprise universities, um, kind of tweaking some of those ideas and curriculums to, uh, to serve people in different, uh, in different situations, mm. there are like, there's huge appetite for simplifying. Um, I mean, there's huge opportunity, sorry, in simplifying really complex ideas and turning them into curriculums. And I think I, you know, I was so turned off the idea of hiring a team of people to build something that maybe yeah. I need to start looking at that at this point where you have like product market fit to the degree where you can, develop things uh and you probably need some support on the sales side and the production side um I'm just still so uh cautious about bringing people in full time so that that would be another another angle would be like carefully develop new uh, uh curriculums um definitely selling into you know thousand two thousand ten thousand seat uh deals um and then on the media side like i said doing collaborations i think at a cultural level so i'm doing i have a couple of conversations going now with like big artists uh i think we're seeing like a really interesting um i mean hopefully this resonates with you this is i mean it'd be a good question actually like entrepreneurship as a component of pop culture uh like it's kind of this force that is growing underneath um, things that maybe used to be not spoken about or, you know, not considered uh, interesting things for kids to talk about, learn about. Uh, so I think that that idea of trying to support that movement or like better, like, there's a very fine line, right? Between this like cringy motivational stuff and yeah. like legitimate education and uh, content that is helping people like build better mental models for operating in the world. And I think riding that line is, is, uh, is that's the goal over the long term. And I, right. and obviously crypto web three is like insanely interesting to me, but it's also, uh, like I said, there's also just, a uh, a huge amount of nonsense in that space and it's also the the buzzword is um it's interesting like you can really obfuscate stuff with a word that is trending you know metaverse is another good one uh like just adding that we've heard it over the last few months like people just say that on their earnings call yeah. Just so, you know, their shareholders yeah. like, oh God, I, I, thank God they're thinking about that. But when you know nothing's being done or built or yeah. there's no unique perspective really. So Walmart I think comes that, to mind. Um, yeah, yeah, there you go. Exactly. Throw in the uh, cereal boxes in with your Oculus headset, just <laughs> idiocy, right? It's just yeah. crazy. But um, there is a lot of amazing technology being built, great teams. Like I think the there's so much of the web three philosophy that aligns with the things that I've been building with visualized value, right? The idea of taking more ownership in your work, like reducing the friction to earning and contributing and all of those things are really, really um, well aligned with uh, what we teach. And the 
yeah, the my the my caution in approaching that is like it's not as simple as identifying something that has Web three or uh, NFTs or whatever it is in the description of the thing. You still have to evaluate it from the perspective of like, is this uh, you know something people want or something people want to be a part of for more than you know a speculative financial vehicle and there are very few examples of that and i want visualized value to be one of those examples so um but yeah developing point. it slowly and thoughtfully is the only way to do that in my opinion yeah i think you made a you made a great point there when when you said that if you start to oversaturate you know your products it may seem cringy or maybe disingenuous but at the same time your the costs that go into building visualized value are extremely low right so you can mm -hmm. afford to keep it um, keep the products product line small right I mean, you have exactly yeah you have extremely high margins you have no like employees right it's just you and your wife celia who who basically run correct visualized value which is That's amazing right. yeah so i suppose there's that and there's also the fact that in the last maybe i like to say year or so you've really gone into exploring nfts as a way mm -hmm. to generate some income although i don't know whether it amounts to as much as um the the, the courses does but effectively every single tweet now has a price tied to it right because Mm -hmm. you sell you're effectively selling each tweet as a as an nft now yeah the um so there's some uh there's some filtering that goes into it so there's there's like a really interesting economics uh art world discussion that i'm like i don't come from that world and i think there's like very uh very specific strategies for pricing artwork that I'm not privy to. And I'm, I'm a great believer in the free market as I have taught in uh, all of the courses that we produced. And I think in some ways that has hurt the like newsworthiness of the visualized value NFT, like um, visualized value NFTs in general, but the long game, I think this is where it gets really interesting to me is trying to document this moment in time and more specifically the the stuff that i've tried to mint or the things that i want to preserve uh talking or at least communicating the like people's kind of collective understanding of like nfts playing out so hmm. if you think about like 10 20 30 years like these are visual explanations of this massive shift in culture that's like more of the reason for doing it than pivoting to become a you know uh, an nft company or whatever an nft artist so um like you said at the beginning of the podcast i i really struggle to decide what like how to categorize how to categorize visualize value as a business or me as a person like that's there's just so many different like interesting things going on and people really want to have a you know how do I refer to X? It's really difficult to just give someone a word or two, but all the, all the while like culture is changing and interesting, there are interesting things to experiment with and try and record. 
it's the same principle as you know coming across Naval's ideas for the first time or it's like how do I take this thing that I have a I how do I like package this in a way that hopefully makes more people understand it and I think that's just the um that's just like the guiding principle of visualized value as a business over time and who knows what happens in the world next year that you can then apply that on top of and that's the one thing that I love about it as a business and an idea is it's just like a, a lens. You could just feed things through visualized value and I can just continue to pursue my curiosity. And it's kind of like a, a filter that just um, codifies these, these experiences or these ideas over time. And NFTs as a medium are really, uh, you know, really interesting when you think about in 10 years time going back because like you said twitter could kick you off tomorrow um like your tweets aren't really searchable or like it's just a really interesting new medium for preserving thought and in the same way that there are a billion tweets a day by probably next year there'll be a billion nfts a day right just the 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 way in which um the way in which different platforms can be built on top of NFTs specifically is pretty fascinating, but we're so we're at such a early stage of the process that I think I, I, I kind of battle between I should preserve everything. Like literally every single thought I have or every single visual I make should go on chain. Yeah. And then there's a completely different school of thought where it's like, um, you know, only the really, really significant stuff. You have to be very strategic about it. You have like, and that to me is like, I try and resist that urge. It's very difficult because you, there's some ego in there, right? Where it's like every sale has to be more significant. Every um, piece has to be like more profound than the last. Or you view it as like, this is a completely new internet and everything I say, do or think I want to preserve in some way, shape or form. So um yeah, I can't even remember what the question you asked, but I've been, that, that's the rant that just oh, yeah. bounces around my head most days. I think that's a super interesting way of thinking about it. You mentioned on-chain. I guess maybe people listening might not know what that is. And uh, could you just explain that for a bit? Sure. So um, again, I don't have a technical background, but yeah. I'll do my best. So the just the notion of a decentralized system, maybe that's the best place to start, is uh, like a, a system that arrives at consensus in a distributed way. So a Twitter, for example, is a, um, you know, there's a set of server farms that host all the data that runs on Twitter that is controlled by a couple offices in San Francisco or remote, uh, you know, wherever people are running Twitter from versus a blockchain like Ethereum, where records are maintained on a distributed system. So there's 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 computers that are all working in sync to um, agree upon the structure of this blockchain, right? The ledger, the integrity of the ledger. And nobody can go back and change that. If you, you know, put a message on chain, it will be recorded on that ledger. And maintained until the last computer in that blockchain is turned off, which 
you know i think we've reached a consensus now where the the uh that's a very unlikely thing to happen um short of a nuclear armageddon or the earth flying out of orbit like the ethereum blockchain is is here to stay so um what that also allows people to do is build tools that read that blockchain right so the in you couldn't build a new twitter and take all of the content from twitter and repackage it that's a that's something that twitter owns so the data that you post to twitter you're essentially building their product for them versus you preserving things on chain whether that's you know your writing your like tools that you build um there are there are um it's how am i going to say this that the the like philosophical difference is that the data is accessible to anyone so you can build tools that read this data and you know the ui is kind of a commodity on top of the blockchain versus like building in this silo like a, a twitter or whatever else where um there's no portability between systems so the visualized value catalog of ideas could be you know pulled into all these different contexts and used in very different ways nobody can interfere with it delete it um you know it's it's uh it's a primitive format right now but the kind of implications of it over the long term i think um people get it intuitively that it's profound but it's very hard to like envision what exactly how it, how it exactly it plays out it's just a a system that i think people philosophically are um like really appreciate we as people kind of love the idea of preserving things and yeah. collecting things and uh knowing that all of your work and energy is going into a system that you don't have ownership over i think over time that's going to be an idea that people are just like well wow, that's ridiculous right like i spend 10 hours a day on the computer and 98% of my labor i'm just like feeding into this system that could be switched off tomorrow exactly i think yeah, I like how you mentioned that you weren't an expert on it and then just bust out this explanation way better than... Well, I don't I, th I th I, there's probably people who are listening and are like, no, that's not quite right, but, uh, but <laughs> I appreciate that. No, but the way I thought of on-chain was just basically if, say, um, the, the site that hosts your NFT, for example, goes down, it lives forever on the, on the blockchain. But yeah, exactly, as you also said. Also true, yeah. Yeah, but... um. Are, are the visualized value entities, are they on chain as well? So that's, I'm working on that right now. So they're on uh, IPFS, the yeah. images. And uh, I'm working on, uh, again, the technical component of this. Like there is not a tool that exists for someone yeah. without technical expertise to put uh, work on chain. So, and, and in some cases, the artwork can't go on chain unless you're prepared to spend a, a, absolutely insane amount of money because i mean and visualized values position pretty uniquely here because the artwork is so simple yeah that it's just vector coordinates so you could every piece of visualized value artwork could be expressed as uh an svg graphic which is you know 100 lines of code or something and you could put that on chain for a pretty reasonable yeah. price but there's technical limitations. So I've, I'm actually working with someone right now to help me uh, get, like, get that integrity going forward. Um, and IPFS is kind of a, you know, again, a web 2.5 type yeah. situation where this data is 
decentralized and to the best visibility, um, you know, maintained by thousands and thousands of computers versus, I shouldn't even say computers, thousands and thousands of parties versus one. Jack, when you think about your journey so far, how much of it do you think has come down to luck and how much do you think has come down to skill? A good question. I think, I think this is a, uh, uh, Buffett quote. It's like 99% of your luck could be ascribed to where you're born. Right. Like yeah. I was born in, uh, Southwest England. Um, got to go to university. I was the first one in my family to go to university, but still, um, you know, was that was made possible by how I grew up, where I was born and all that. Um, I think some risk, like some maybe slightly higher propensity for risk. But again, that comes down to, um, you know, if you want to talk about luck and risk, there's definitely a big uh, discussion to be had there, like how much risk you can take relative to how lucky you are, right? How big your safety net is. And mine was like, you know, I think Tim Ferriss talks about this, where it's like, what's the worst that could happen if something goes like completely wrong? Like if you have like friends or family to move back in with and, you know, yeah. can get you back off zero, then that's, there's a element of luck there. And then I think, but once you're in that position, right, once you get to like, you've landed in an environment where you have exposure to opportunity, then I think you can start to talk about skill. So if you can get to that point, uh, there's plenty of people that have those circumstances that don't take risks and don't um, like, don't end up in a different situation. But like, I think most people underestimate or overestimate the amount of risk that they're actually taking, right? Like if you're, if you don't, if, especially when you're younger, right? If you have, um, if you have a, like mouths to feed and like responsibilities beyond yourself later in life, then your risk tolerance just naturally tails off. But when you can afford to take risk, um, I think the amount of skill I was able to build is definitely a product of like taking numerous risks and getting exposed to a lot of different environments. And the, I was, I was almost like, um, I think the moving to a different place and like starting scratch as well is like, almost like you kind of get like free rolls of the dice, if that makes sense. It's like, you're, you've gone, you completely like hit the reset button. Yeah. And if a job doesn't work out, I just get another job. Right. I think a lot of, um, that comes from again, being also being a little lucky choosing the career that I chose. I wasn't like, I didn't grow up like I want to be a graphic designer. It was not my, uh, wasn't like an intrinsic thing that I wanted to be from when I was a baby. It was like, uh, I remember I did, I was applying for work experience in, in the UK at 16, right? You yeah, yeah. have to do work experience somewhere. And, uh, I remember like looking at the options on the thing. I was just like, this looks dreadful, right? Like <laughs> these are the school provided options. And, uh, my, cousin i think yeah my cousin worked at a graphic design studio in nottingham and i was like oh that sounds that sounds like better than you know working on a building site or like yeah. building cars or whatever it was and i'd done all of that stuff when i was younger i was like let me go and do that for a week and i went up there for a week because i can't believe you're getting paid to do this you're literally <laughs> playing around on the computer all day 
So then like from that point forward, I was like, wow, like these, these types of jobs exist, right? There are like sections of the economy that aren't like humping dirt around all day or like building like, yeah. So I think that's another portion of the luck piece, right? It's like who, who you get introduced to or like what, um, what is around you when you're growing up, what you realize to be possible. Um, and there's some luck involved in that too. And then like adding a certain degree of risk or being aware of the amount of risk you can take is definitely how like skill begins to compound on top of that luck. But uh, a heavy dose of it for sure. I would never say uh, like, I've heard people talk of like no such thing as luck and all these things. It's just kind of, <laughs> I don't know, it feels absurd to me to say that, but, um, and it, but it, you know, it gets clicks and that's why a lot of people speak in absolutes and, uh, it's frustrating, but there's like the other frustrating part of it is like not believing in it at all. Right. Like that's, uh, yeah. that's not going to serve anybody. Well, um, even if you have been statistically unlucky and where you begin, like not believing in the concept of, serendipity or luck or like engine like you know people talk about increasing your surface area of luck and that all comes from like you have to get lucky in the first place to be in a position to like capitalize on that luck so uh it's a complicated subject and i don't think anybody answering it in like a sentence is is being very honest <laughs> yeah i think that's honestly a good answer but um final question jack um what advice do you have for, I suppose, young aspiring entrepreneurs, people who maybe not so sure what they're going to do in life? What do you say to them? I think, uh, I think getting exposure to things is really important. And in hindsight was the thing that helped me find my thing, like people, places, industries, um, like even the weirdest stuff right like i worked in the honda factory for nine months building cars i worked in a hairdresser's worked in a shredding facility worked in a um where else like i had so many different like weird odds and end jobs i've worked on building sites just done all sorts of stuff and like just little things you pick up on or things that you um intuit about yourself that you're good at kind of lead you down this path. I think one of the things that I'm grateful for about the time in which I grew up is that it wasn't like you're not bombarded by information or like everybody else's story every single day. And like when I started my career, I had a BlackBerry, you know, the uh, yeah, like I had a QWERTY keyboard, my phone, and I had like five people that I would message at the end of the day on that were still living in London. The rest of the time I was 10 hours a day, heads down, like working on stuff, right? Just like practicing my craft. And I think that's a really hard thing to do now. I empathize with people that are growing up in in so much noise, especially because like that's the same environment that really gets you inspired. It's like it, it teaches you what's possible and shows you what other people are accomplishing, but it's hard to pull out of that and work on the skills that can get you there. And I think you know, that's why we see so much speculation and it feels like it's really hard to get ahead. But it's also true that 
99% of people are doing that. So if you're in the 1% that isn't, you're building an enormous advantage, right? And it's like trying to get that balance between, um, I get like taking a risk, right? Pulling yourself out of the, or what feels like taking a risk is like pulling yourself out of the like, here now like this is happening you need to just be consuming it versus like you can step out and work on something that you know you can come back into it and contribute in a real meaningful way um that's a hard thing to accomplish yeah. i think now and i i feel for younger people that are in that position uh but the first piece of advice i think is still completely true and helps you with the second piece right it's like meet new people, go to new places, travel, like all of the stuff that you get to, uh, I wouldn't say I'm old, but I'm, th I'm 33 now, I think. Um, and, uh, obviously like the speed at which you can try new things and do new things just decreases with time. At least in my, in my circumstance, I got a family now. So when you're like in your early twenties, Oh, you just graduated school, just like stack up as much life experience as you can. And it like that will definitely help you find your, um, find your thing and continue to refine your thing. Um, that's, that would be my advice. And that wraps up my conversation with Jack Butcher, founder of Visualize Value. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in and we'll see you guys next week.